7. We'll begin reading together in just a few moments, but uh, I hope that I'll be one of the last, perhaps, to wish you a happy new year. Or perhaps I might be one of the first to wish you a happy 2011. Now, there's a raging debate going on, and this debate has absolutely nothing to do with home, uh, has nothing to do with health care, has nothing to do with the firing of coaches, uh, has nothing to do with any of those kinds of things, but there is a raging debate going on as to whether we are beginning or ending a decade. And uh, I don't care. Uh, I remember there was a friend of mine uh, years ago, we were asking him about the Super Bowl and uh, asked him who he thought was going to win, and he said, hit don't make no difference, and that's just the kind of way I am. Uh, my mind's made up on uh, on this issue of decades and, and when the year begins and when the year ends and, and the millennium and all of that, so don't confuse me with the facts. Uh, I'm thinking uh, that the, the naughties uh, of the last 10 years have come and gone. They've been a trying time, an exciting time, frustrating time, and, uh, and an interesting time. But I'm looking forward to a new decade. I don't care if it begins this year or next. I'm still looking forward to it. And I, uh, I, I just, uh, as, I, as I've had a little opportunity over the last few days, um, I've been poking around on Facebook. Now, I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. Uh, I, have a, a, I have a page that I seriously uh, considered taking down and, because it just requires so much effort to maintain it and to keep it updated and to, and to check it on a regular basis. But I've been poking around some of your Facebook accounts and pages. And some of you, uh, uh, you've been involved in, uh, in a lot of new traditions uh, some of you have found, uh, found out about the banging of pots and pans to welcome in the new year. Now, uh, for those of you that go out in your backyard and shoot off shotguns, and uh, here in Alaska we can have fireworks. Uh, there's no problem with danger of, uh, of fires this time of the year. Uh, but I, uh, I grew up in a, in a part of the country in the Midwest where uh, you didn't shoot a shotgun and you didn't fire firecrackers. Uh, you went out into your yard with uh, pots and pans and spatulas, and you banged on those. And uh, that's the way we celebrated New Year's. And that was a tradition of our family. Well, the reason I'm telling you this is that uh, sometimes we wonder where these things come from and how it got started. And, and I just discovered uh, with a little research this last week or so that that actually is a way, whether you're shooting guns or you're ringing of bells or you're banging of pots and pans, that that is a very pagan practice. It's a superstitious practice of warding off the evil spirits of 2009 and welcoming the good karma, the good, uh, the good spirits of 2010. Well, uh, that may be true, but uh, I, I tell you what, I, I, I still think it's fun to celebrate the changing of the new year. How many of you, uh, Yeah, I, I think we need to be careful that we don't give up uh, some of our traditions, uh, simply because somebody else uh, has made something evil out of it. That which man means for evil, God can make good. And some of my fondest memories have been praying in the new year and making that transition. But let me ask, how many of you had had some kind of uh, special meal on New Year's Day? I, I want to see an actual show of hands. Did any of you have black-eyed peas or, or beans of any kind? Well, that's another tradition that I found out. And a lot of you... 
uh, are not even aware of the fact that if you will eat a poor man's meal on New Year's Day, your first meal of the new year, then you'll prosper the entire year. And uh, that's been a practice uh, in our family. We grew up in the Midwest. We ate a lot of, of great northern and navy beans on New Year's Day. Moved to Texas and found out that it's all about black-eyed peas. And so some of you are from the South. You enjoyed your black-eyed peas. But those are some traditions that we practice and uh, some of the things that we do uh, that you might not uh, have known the source or the purpose of it. Well, I've been richly blessed during the year 2009, and I think the last, perhaps, maybe month, how long has it been since Thanksgiving? Five weeks? Probably in the last five weeks, I put on at least 10 pounds. Yeah, I show it, and, uh, and so some of you are going to join me this week in our annual trek to the gym. You know how that works. You have those, uh, those times of commitment, those times of uh, starting afresh, and you're going to commit to doing better in 2010, and you're going to go to the gym, and you're going to try to lose all of that weight the first time you get on the treadmill, the first time you, you start to work out. And then that night, and for the days that follow, you're going to be so sore. I know what I'm talking about here. I'm speaking from experience. You're going to be so sore so tuckered out and discouraged that it'll be another year before you make your annual trip, your annual trek to, to the gym. Well, some of us are going to be a little more noble than that, and we're going to repent of all the Christmas celebration and all the Christmas gifts that we bought. And so we're going to commit to paying off our credit cards. We're going to commit to, uh, to getting a, a handle on our debt. That's a very lofty resolution to make as we face the new year. Some of us are going to even be spiritual. And I know as a child, I, I used to do these kinds of things. Lord, uh, during this next year, I want to do better. Now, as a kid, I didn't know what that meant. I thought it meant I'm going to go to church without complaining. Or I'm going to make a resolution that I'm going to be in church every Sunday. And you can look around and see by the empty seats, some of our folks made that re resolution and already they failed. Well, that's okay. Resolutions are to be an encouragement, there to be a goal, there to encourage us. But I think it would be a, a lofty resolution for us to stand before God today and to recommit to the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, the, the church that is worldwide, but also recommit to the body of Christ right here. In the early service, we had two or three pastors, two or three servants at other churches in our community that were with us. My friends, there is more going on in the kingdom of God than just what takes place in this room for an hour on Sunday. So let's consider the possibility of uh, making a New Year's resolution of a spiritual nature. Uh, maybe like uh, my wife and I, you're going to commit to read the Bible through again, or maybe for the first time. That's okay. Uh, we're, we're not all on the same spiritual level. Some of us have read the Bible through in its entirety, and some of us have yet to, to have that joy. It's not too late in 2010 to commit to read the Bible through. And if you want to know some plans as to how to do it, I can help you with that. I have a computer program. We'll, we'll find the version that you like, the translation of the Bible. We'll find a, a calendar uh, that'll fit you. You can go down the road to Vine and Branches and they sell all kinds of study Bibles and they sell all kinds of, of Bibles that you can read the Bible through in a year. 
And so about three years ago, my wife and I and Monica, we, uh, we read uh, the Bible through in a year uh, using a particular translation of the Bible. And then last year uh, or two years ago, Vicki and I read through the New Testament uh, very carefully with all the study notes that went into the, to that. Then last year we read through the Old Testament. I have to admit I, I got a little off track and didn't quite get it finished. But it's not too late to commit to a spiritual resolution and uh, to make a, a spiritual commitment to the Lord. Some of us, and you would expect an executive pastor uh, to encourage you, some of you, uh, some of us need to, to recommit ourselves to stewardship and to, to giving to the Lord's ministry and being involved in that. But I, I share that with you uh, simply because these are opportunities for us to grow in grace and to grow in God's love, to try Him, test Him, to know Him, and to enjoy Him. Some of us are going to make a commitment to just clean our house or wash our car, and that's okay. Uh, you might be surprised to know that, uh, that the old proverb, that the old saying, cleanliness is next to godliness, really isn't a scriptural saying. For years, I gave that credit to Ben Franklin only to discover that Francis Bacon was the first to originate it and uh, that Jonathan uh, Wesley uh, popularized the concept of cleanliness being next to godliness. If anything, when we read Scripture, we find that there is a cleanliness that can lead away from God and it can become a stumbling block. And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at a group of people uh, that came to the Lord and uh, a group of people that were, that were committed to being very disciplined and very religious and in their sight being very righteous only to discover that they were the purveyors of religion and that they were miserable failures in a relationship to the Heavenly Father. So let's begin reading today in, uh, in Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7. Uh, the title for my message today is Inside, Outside, Inside Out, Outside In. And we're going to be focusing on the clean and the unclean. Mark chapter 7. Let's just read uh, a few verses and then we'll stop, take a look at what, uh, what some of this means and how we can apply it to our lives. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders." When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and uh, teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? This morning, as we pause for a few moments, I have a very, uh, very basic and a very brief outline for you. The first thing that I, I want us to do as we consider these first five verses of chapter 7 is to answer some very basic questions that we might be asking today. So what does all of this mean to me? 
So what happens when we focus on the outside and ignore the inside? We find a scriptural, uh, a scriptural base for a, a group of people that do that. As we stop to reflect and, and recall, Mark, John Mark, uh, was a, a young man that, uh, that grew up in a home that was filled with believers. John Mark, uh, who later grew up to be a man of tremendous faith, a man that was willing to, to, to go anywhere and do anything, but that was not always the case in John Mark's life. And one of the things that I, I, I'm reminded when I, when I read John Mark's testimony and I, I'm reminded when I read his life is that, uh, uh, that not all of us are on the same spiritual page. Not all of us are on the same spiritual level. When we walk through these doors and we come in here and sit down, sometimes we assume that everybody else is just like we are. Everybody else is just like me. Or maybe just the opposite. Uh, we walk through these doors and we believe that uh, we are totally different than anybody else. Well, one of the things that we need to be aware of is that we are not all on the same spiritual page. We are not all at the same point in our spiritual journey. There are some that have been walking with the Lord for years and years and years. They have, they have, have had an opportunity to get to know Him in a very real and a very personal way. Well, there was a group of people that came to Jesus and, uh, and their desire was not to get to know him. Their desire was to oppose him. Uh, it's almost like uh, uh, these, these denominational officials came out from Jerusalem to find out what it was that this very popular new preacher up in the northern part of the kingdom, up around the Sea of, of Galilee, find out what this Jesus of Nazareth was doing. And what it was that was, uh, uh, that was causing such a, such a controversy and such a desire of people to follow. Well, one of the things that they discovered about him is that uh, one day when he and his disciples, it tells us back a few chapters, I think chapter 3, one day when he and his disciples were walking along a, a field of grain, they became hungry. There's nothing wrong with being hungry. And so they, they reached down and they took some of the grain that was growing there along the side of the path, along the side of the road. And you see the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes took issue with this. Not that Jesus and his disciples were, were stealing grain that did not belong to them. No, that was part of God's plan for feeding the poor and for feeding um, the, the, the people who, uh, that had no other means, people that were traveling, that when you, when you literally harvested the crop, you were to leave uh, the bar ditches, if you're from Texas. You were to leave the areas near the road. You were to leave the outer edges of the harvest field left available so that the poor, the needy, and those that were traveling through the area would have a place to eat. Now, What's interesting is the Pharisees got upset that Jesus' disciples were eating. They were upset that they were eating on the Sabbath. And they were upset that they were traveling on the Sabbath. And so Jesus takes time to deal with, whoa, 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 we, we've, we've got things a little bit out of kelter here. We've got things a little mixed up here. The Sabbath was created for man not man for the Sabbath. God doesn't have to have the Sabbath. God allows us and, and, and gives us the Sabbath for our good. 
And so Jesus begins to say very early in his ministry that there are some of you that have got this thing of religion all mixed up and all messed up. And so they came to him again and they want to know what it is that you're doing here. You're, you're coming in from the market. You're coming in from the church. You're coming in from school. You're coming in from work. And you're sitting down and you're eating and your hands are clean are not clean. They weren't concerned about whether Jesus' hands were clean or not. They were concerned about his, about his authority. And they were concerned about what it was that he was saying about their authority. Now, at our house, it's important. We get ready to sit down to our evening meal together. And one by one, either mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, Jade, have you washed your hands? Jacob, have you washed your hands? Now, he's just three. He needs a little help. Jonathan, have you washed your hands? You see, we are concerned about germs. And we are concerned about the, about the, 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 the discipline of washing your hands. And we wash our pots and pans when we're done with them. We don't let the dog lick about it. I saw an article yesterday uh, about a family living down uh, around uh, Saldovia. And uh, they, they literally uh, let dogs lick the plates to save the energy of having to wash these plates. Oh, we don't do that. We, we do it the old-fashioned way. We put them in the dishwasher. Now, here's, here's, here's the point that I think that, that we need to make and that we need to be very careful of here. What happens when we focus on the outside, but we ignore the inside? Wearsby, in his commentaries and outlines on the book of, of Mark, he says that God's word and Jesus is bringing an accusation against the Pharisees, an accusation against the scribes that were coming to him. Well, what happens when we focus on the outside and we ignore the inside? Well, one of the things that happens is that uh, it's very easy, it's tempting for us to elevate man's laws as, and to, to treat them as if they were equal with God's laws. The, we, we sometimes elevate what we think, our opinion, our rights, we elevate those to a point where, where we believe that it's just as important and just as good as what God thinks and what God says. God tells us what to do. Sometimes He just chooses not to tell us how to do it. And those times when God tells us what to do, He doesn't intend for well-intended religious leaders to come along and to fill in the blanks for us. He intends for us to come to Him and say, Lord, what is honoring and what is glorifying and what is pleasing to You for me to do with my life? God makes His will very clear. And he spells it out for us. And when God chooses to be silent on an issue, when God chooses not to spell it out for us, I think this should be a warning sign for, for those of us uh, that stand in this pulpit. I think it should be a warning sign for those of us that teach a class. It should be a warning sign for us as parents that we need to be very careful that we are not teaching that cleanliness is next to godliness. That we not be teaching that, uh, that if you'll do things uh, my way and you'll do things the way that I interpret Scripture, 
then you will truly, uh, you will truly draw close to God. Here is a, a living testimony of people that came to Jesus not to learn from Him, not to, to follow Him, but to oppose Him and to, uh, and, and to try to, to trip Him up. The Pharisees were really quite good at telling other people how to live. And uh, my friends, uh, that uh, pharisaical philosophy, that theology, that practice still exists today. It exists throughout uh, the church, the universal church. There are churches filled with Pharisees that are still quite good at telling people how they should live. Let me, uh, let me give you a little, a little test. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter uh, 29. And, or, well, actually, Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 29. We're going to, we're going to go a different direction. But um, let me give you a, just a, a little test for you to, to consider. Um, if I was to ask you, fill in the blank, just no show of hands, uh, no, uh, no turning in papers. This isn't a test. It's a thought provoker. If I was to ask you to complete this sentence, how would you con- conclude it? It just would not be church without. It just would not be church without God. I, I think that's taught in Scripture. I think that that's good. It would not be church if God's Word was not proclaimed if God's Word was not taught, if God's Word was not elevated far above man's Word, man's thoughts, how would you conclude that statement? It would not be church without hymns. It would not be church without choruses. It would not be church if I didn't go home fed and satisfied. You see, there, there are those things that call attention to God and there are those things that, that God says, I, I really, really yearn and long for this relationship. And then there are those things that we come along almost like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and we add to the requirements of what it would be to, to be church. I, I have a dear friend in the ministry, a dear friend of mine, that I actually had the, the privilege of, of serving as his pastor during his retirement years, Jess, uh, Jess Hightower is probably uh, not long for this world. He's, his health has failed this last year. But uh, Jess is a wonderful, wonderful servant of God. And I can remember uh, we, were, we were talking about a particular facility that we had. And uh, we were talking about the need to, to either do a major remodel, uh, some modifications. There were things that were just not working and that were outdated leaking the roof was leaking it was just a poor testimony to the lord and so we were talking about uh maybe the first thing we wanted to do as a church is we wanted to do with the idea do away with the idea of a sanctuary you know a sanctuary a special place a special room that would only be used for worship i I pastored a church one time that had a several thousand dollar pipe organ and literally, uh, on the side of the walls, there were, there were gold stripes that were painted into the paint. And, and literally, there were gold pigments in those stripes. Now, I'm not a proud of that fact, but this was, this was one of those situations where we were talking about doing things and hopefully 
perhaps getting it right. And we were talking about uh, having a facility that could be used more than just for an hour on Sunday morning, a facility somewhat like this. And, and we talked about the fact that, uh, uh, that it probably wouldn't be covered with carpet and that it might even have a garage door on one end of it. And that the ceiling would, uh, would, not be, uh, would not be acoustical tiles, but that they might have lights hanging from it and that it might be painted black. And Jess, with his heart of gold, said, Brother Ron, it just wouldn't be church without all those things. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not judging Jess, my friend. I'm just saying, well, how would you complete that sentence? It just would not be church without all the stuff. I don't know about you, but I just enjoyed some stuffing uh, this last Thanksgiving and Christmas, New Year's. But I think that we need to be ready to do away with some of our spiritual stuffing that we think to be so absolutely important. So what happens when we focus on the outside and we ignore the inside? Well, we might feel at home with the Pharisees when they came and questioned Jesus. Now, let's see what Jesus' response is, beginning with the sixth verse. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 6. Let's read along together for just a few moments. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right. We don't want to know why Isaiah said. We don't want the Word of God said. We, We want to know what you think. Jesus says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, and with their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, or meaningless worship. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever help you might have otherwise have received from me, it is now korban. That is a gift devoted to God then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and so do many things like that. Let's stop there for just a moment. I'm doing double duty today. I usually punch the buttons for Pastor Jeff, and things all seem to go real well. In the first service, I forgot to punch the button. And we got, uh, we got halfway through the service before I ever, ever got my, my outline brought up to you, but that's okay. Point number two, what happens when we focus on the rules and ignore the ruler? Wiersbe says this section not only is an accusation, but it's condemnation. It's where Jesus brings about condemnation. He says it's just like Isaiah said in his time. And believe me, the Israelites did not appreciate what Isaiah said then, nor did these, did these uh, Pharisees and, and scribes appreciate Jesus quoting Isaiah at his time. And I'll be honest with you, many of us don't appreciate anybody when they're being critical of us, especially when they're being critical of our religious beliefs. 
Jesus said that to keep the rules and to ignore God is to worship in vain. To worship in vain. In Malachi, it says, God, God says that all oh, that somebody would just shut the doors. When, when you come to me and you're, you're worshiping me in doubt and, and in anger, and you're coming and you're just doing nothing but complaining about what I either did or didn't do as your God. God says, I just wish that somebody would nail the doors shut. Jesus says that when we forget the, the ruler and we look to the rules, that we are worshiping God in vain. Vain worship means meaningless worship. Now, this is where it might get a little uncomfortable for some of us. Because our kids have heard us discuss worship services and pastors preaching and the direction that the church is going. And our, some of us, our kids have heard us as we, as we roast somebody on our way home. Some of us say, I just absolutely am getting nothing out of the worship service. They don't sing the kind of songs that I like. They don't, uh, they don't get out. The temperature's not the way I like it. And we don't get out at the time that I want to get out. And uh, we don't sing and do all the things that I would, would like to do. Well, my friends, sometimes we go home empty because we've had a meaningless experience. The reason that we've had a meaningless experience certainly is not because Linda and the praise team or Pastor Jeff or the people that run the sound booths, or, or, or the guys that set up the chairs, it certainly is not because we haven't prepared. Sometimes we go home because we had a meaningless worship experience, because we, we, we uh, focused on the rules and we ignore the ruler. That's what Jesus was warning these Pharisees. That's what he was condemning them. That's what he was accusing them of doing. Sometimes we go home empty and unchanged because our worship is in vain, because it is meaningless. We go home empty because we focus on the outside and we ignore the inside. We focus on the external and we ignore the internal. We go home empty because we focus on the present and the temporal and we ignore the eternal. God had a group of people that were a little bit upset with him. Turn with me back to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. I, I want to I show you or remind you of, of something that happens when people uh, cross the line in, uh, in their relationship and they begin to worship the things of God as opposed to God himself. Chapter 21 of the book of, book of Numbers, uh, we find uh, that uh, God had just had, had delivered the, the children of Israel, and, and these, were, uh, these were some exciting days. Uh, they'd been set free from their bondage. Uh, he had parted the sea, and they had crossed over the Red Sea, and uh, they, were, they were on their way. But yet uh, they became, uh, it says in verse 4 of chapter 21, they traveled from Mount Or along the route to the Red Sea, to go around Edom. But look what it says here in, in the last part of verse, verse uh, 4 here. But the people grew impatient on the way. Uh, if you allow me a little bit of liberty here, they began to say, I want what I want and I want it now. Uh, I, I, I want what I want and, and I'm not going to be happy till I get it. And until the people grew impatient on the way and they spoke against God. No, they were just speaking against 
God's leader and God's ways and, and God's provisions and God's food and, uh, and God's promises, what they were speaking against. The Bible says they spoke against God as they spoke against these things. They spoke against God and against Moses and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. There was two. I want to borrow that expression that I use with my grandson, Jonathan, from time to time when he says things that are not true. Catch him off guard. And I say, liar, liar, pants on fire. What does that mean, Grandpa? It means what you're saying is not true. You can do that. Well, Moses' followers were complaining. And I'm tempted to just say, liar, liar, pants on fire. But God did something differently. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt into the desert to die? There is no bread, there is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. And they bit the people. And many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and they said, we have sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. They were in a, they were in a mess. It was a result of choices that they had made. They made some choices, and choices carry consequences. The children of Israel were being bitten as, a, as an act of judgment on their, on their decisions, on their behavior, on their attitudes, on their hearts. God brought judgment upon them. But yet God provided them with the, with the remedy. He provided them with the, the resource. He provided them with what they needed. And so you would think all would be well. The children of Israel, all they had to do when they were being bitten by the snakes was look at that brazen pole, at that snake on the pole, and they could be saved. And we can get excited about that. We can preach sermons on that. We can create seminaries and colleges, and we can write translations of the Bible that, that remind us that Jesus says, I am, am like that brazen serpent. I will be lifted up. Salvation is free. All you have to do is look to me. Come to the cross. Well, look what happens in 2 Kings chapter, chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, it tells us in verse 1 that uh, King Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, began to rule in Judah. King Hezekiah, in his 20, he was only 25 years old. He did some good things, it tells us in verse 3. Young King Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. It says in verse 4 of, of chapter 18, He removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones. He cut down the Asherah poles. Good stuff. Go get him, Hezekiah. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up till that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. God provided a way out, provided freedom. And yet they worshipped the Creator. 
the creation rather than the creator. They worshiped the thing that God had given them, the tool that God had given them. That is a precious cross that hangs on the wall. But that cross, my friends, is a tool that God used because of his love for you. That is a tool that we are not to worship. We're to respect it. We're to honor it. We're to appreciate it. But we should never bow down to it. We should never bow down to the Word of God because bibliolatry is, is, is idol worship. Now, my friends, this is the written Word of God. This is the written manifestation of God. Make no mistake about it. It is, it is worthy to be studied, to be applied, to be, to be memorized, to be, a, to be the very foundation of our lives. It is far above man's laws. It is God's law. But we are not to worship the creation. We are to worship the creator. So what happens when we focus on the rules? We focus on the creation. We focus on things of God rather than the rule of God. Let's look at, uh, very quickly, we'll just look at the remainder of, uh, of, of chapter 7, beginning with verse 14. Chapter 7, 14 through 23. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside of a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked, What did you mean? What was this all about? His disciples asked him about this parable. And Jesus responded, Are you so dull? He asked, Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make himself, can make him unclean? For it does not go into the heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared that all foods are clean. It took Peter a while to figure this out. It took a, it took a vision, a dream, uh, in the book of Acts, before he finally got the, got the teaching that Jesus was introducing here. But my friends, Jesus was saying to, to the Pharisees, he was saying to the scribes, he was saying to those that were following him, that cleanliness, when it focuses on the outside, when, when it focuses on the behavior and it does not deal with the heart, it misses the, the issue. He went on what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For what for, for from within, out of men's hearts, I'm sorry, from, for from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts. Pastor Jeff has been dealing with a lot of these issues. He says, and not to, this is not exhaustive, it's, it's, not, in, it's not all inclusive, it's just a few of the things that come out of a man's heart. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. If he doesn't include what's coming out of your heart, then you've been so concerned about washing the outside of the vessel that maybe you need to add that which is in your heart. He says, here are some things that, that, that are indicative of, of a man or a woman or, or a church or a denomination that holds to an outward form of godliness and denies the power thereof. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. 
What happens when we focus on the action and ignore the heart? You see, the heart is more than just an organ that pumps blood through the, through the, the veins. The heart was the soul. It was the center. It was the very life, the very essence of a man. And a man is defiled not by what, it, what goes into a person's mouth, but is defiled by what comes out. You see, Jesus is saying it's, it's not about the, the condition of the hands, it's uh, whether your hands are clean or not. It's, it's not about the condition of the cup, the pot, or the pan um, as to whether, whether it's clean or not. He says what we have here is heart problem. He some, we sometimes think that we, uh, that we have a problem with God because we're not very religious. Oh, my friends, that's where God wants us to be. He wants us to, to be as unreligious as we possibly can be. He wants us to be repentant. He wants us to have a personal relationship. Whatever being religious means, he says, put that aside. Whatever self-righteousness and, and, and self-serving um, uh, holiness that you can come up with by keeping rules and, and, and dotting all of the I's and, and, and crossing all of the T's, stop doing that. The problem is... Not that we're not religious. The problem is that we're not very righteous. We're not very holy. The problem is that our righteousness sometimes is man-made and it comes from our own efforts. I want to conclude by reading to you from the third chapter of Romans when Paul writes and says, here's the kind of righteousness that God's looking for. Here's the kind of righteousness and not religion that... uh, that establishes a relationship between, between a man and, and his God. Chapter 3, verse 9 says, What shall we conclude then? What does all this mean? Where does this bring us to? How do we apply this? What difference does it make? What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike are under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does, who does good, not even one. He's describing us. He's saying if you come before God with anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ... If you're coming before God with anything other than total repentance, total humility, and total dependence upon God, then, my friends, you are coming before God in your own strength. Paul says this is, this is where it leaves us. There's not one of us that's righteous, not even one. Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that, that every mouth may be silenced. And that the whole world held accountable to God, therefore no one will be declared righteous in the sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God. He says, stop, think about this. There is an alternative. Now there is a righteousness from God apart from the law. It has been, uh, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes from faith. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe.
the kind of righteousness that God is looking for is righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. I use that term, cleanliness is next to godliness. We've talked about New Year's resolutions. We've talked about coming to the end of a decade, whether it was the last 10 years or the next 10 years. We've talked about a break, a time, a point where where everything that happened last year and everything that's going to happen in the next year, the, the, the nexus, the connection is what's happening right now. And so as we come to the conclusion of our time together and as we prepare our hearts for the, for the taking of communion, for the taking of the Lord's Supper, as we come to this point, I, I, I just, I, I'm not going to give an altar call today. I'm not going to stand and give an emotional plea that, you, that we're going to sing several stanzas of just as I am and that after a while you'll finally break down your will and come. What I am giving today is not a call to the altar but a call to the cross. A call to a relationship, a call to salvation, a call to, to say, I'm, I'm tired of living rules, I'm tired of living a religion, I'm tired of, of trying to satisfy and to please God in my own abilities. I simply want to come and I want to do it God's way and I want to start today. I, I don't know what all that involves, but I know that I'm going to stop going in the direction that I've been going and I'm going to turn around and I'm going to head to God. Instead of running from Him, I'm going to run to Him just as fast as I can spiritually and physically. The Bible tells us that we are to, that we are to confess. We are to confess. I, you know, I wouldn't have to explain this to you. If, if the police came in and put you in handcuffs, loaded you in the car and told you, watch your head, put you in the back seat, hauled you downtown, took your picture fingerprinted you and you wound up before a judge this afternoon or tomorrow morning and the judge says these are the charges that are leveled against you you have a you have an attorney an, an attorney that's probably going to say you be quiet I'll speak on your behalf but if those charges are true the best thing that you can do is say guilty is charged you've got me nailed everything you say about me is right that's what confession is God's got us nailed folks He's got us figured out. He, he refers to some of us because of our self-righteousness and because of, our, because of our, our man-made religions and our rules. He says to some of us, hypocrites, depart from me for I never knew you. And that's why you're here today because you're tired of running from God and you're tired of doing it your way and you want to start the new year. You want to start the new life. Jesus says you can be born again. And so that which connects us with between our past to our future is now. This is the day of salvation. This is the hour of decision. So I'm not going to give you an invitation this morning to come up and, and to fill out a card and join this church. But I am going to say before you leave this place, if God is dealing with your heart today, before you leave this place, settle this issue. Don't go out into the year 2010 thinking you can try harder, you can pedal harder, you can work harder, that you can, that you can somehow make enough resolutions that you'll be able to satisfy a holy God. It isn't going to happen. Now, I also want to say to some of us that have been walking with the Lord, the last year has been a tough one. We've been walking around in, the, in this world and a little bit like Peter and the disciples that showed up at the, for, the, for the final meal with Jesus, our feet are dirty. 
And Jesus says, believers, followers, children of mine, lovers of, of God, your feet are dirty. Maybe it's not your feet, maybe it's your minds. Maybe it's your hands, your lips, your tongues. Maybe it's your wallet. I, I don't know what's dirty, but Jesus says, I want to wash. I want, I want to forgive. I want to cleanse. Confess. Repent. Accept. Heavenly Father, as we, as we come to the close of this last year, it's just a dot on the calendar. It's just the closing of a month, beginning of another. For some of us, Lord, we've been around a long time, and this New Year's isn't much different than the others. This Sunday really resembles some other Sundays. But Heavenly Father, I pray that as we come before you and recognize that you are a holy God and that we are a sinful people, I pray that something will happen in, in our hearts today, that this will not be just another Sunday, not just another communion not just another first week of January, but Heavenly Father, I pray that we will once again commit ourselves to you. Help us not to focus on the outside. Help us not to focus on the, on the temporal, on the, the stuff, but help us, Father, to focus on you. Thank you, Father, for mercy and grace and for forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask if our men will come forward at this time. We are going to observe communion today. You know, this is one of my favorite parts of, of being in the ministry. It's one of my favorite parts of being a pastor. I, I just, I, I love the Lord's Supper communion. And I know that for some of you, you say, well, you know, could this be one of those little rituals uh, that served a purpose a long time ago? And could this be, uh, could this be something that... Uh, uh, that we need to, to get on, get on, get on, get beyond that. No, my friends, Jesus says, I'm going to leave a couple of examples with you. And one of those examples is baptism. It's going to be a symbol that every time you see it, you're going to be reminded again of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. You're going to be reminded again of the sacrifice that, uh, that Jesus Christ made on our behalf. Well, another thing that he gave us, is something called communion. It's something that brings us together and it reminds us of what it is that he's already done. It reminds us of who we are and it reminds us of what's yet to come. And so this morning, I just want to remind you that there are four parts of communion, four parts of the Lord's Supper. Well, Brother Ron, I know about the bread and I know about the cup, but what, what are the other two parts? Scripture says... In, in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, in the 27th verse, it says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Listen to what it says in verse 28. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. That's the first part of communion. A man, a woman, a child, a teenager a visitor, a member of this church, we ought to examine ourselves before we accept the communion. Heavenly Father, as we search our hearts right now, allow your Holy Spirit to turn on that spiritual light 
Search into the deepest recesses of our hearts. And Heavenly Father, if we do not know you as Lord and Savior, when they pass the, the, the bread and the cups by us, let us just let it pass. May we never take this in an unworthy manner. Heavenly Father, this is the hour of decision, the hour of salvation. And I pray that no person in this room will take this bread lightly. Examine our hearts, Father. Show us those things that we've been clinging to, those things that we've been holding on to, those things that we have, have refused to confess, those things that we have refused to turn over to you. Thank you for, for the blood, for the body, for mercy and grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Search our hearts, O Lord. We confess. We repent. We accept your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. The night that Jesus was with his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. And each disciple had a small portion of that bread. When the bread comes by, receive a piece of this. The 23rd verse of 1 Corinthians 11 says that the Lord Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance 
of me. Verse 25 says, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Examination, the bread, the cup. The fourth is, in verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you proclaim the deaths of the Lord's death until he comes. We are to remember. We are to be available. We are to serve the risen Savior. I want to close by reading very familiar but a very a very needy passage, a very timely passage, Romans chapter twelve. Paul writes to the church at Rome and he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you 
for once again bringing us to this table, for once again leading us to, to confess to you our dependence upon you, our, our woeful inadequacy. We confess to you that we are a people of impure thoughts, unclean lips, and our actions, Heavenly Father, break your heart. Forgive us as your children for not only breaking your law, but for also breaking your heart. Forgive us, Father. Thank you for mercy and grace. May we proclaim Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his return until he comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Happy New Year.